Welcome to the Culture Builders podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance builds strong cultures. Hosted by Jane Sparrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a deep dive episode. Hello, I'm Jane Sparrow, founder and author at The Culture Builders. And with culture in our name, it's unsurprising I have lots of conversations with leaders across the world who will say to me at the beginning, Jane, what is it you mean when you talk about culture? I know what I mean, but what do you mean? Now, as some of you know, what I tend to say is that culture to us isn't a thing. It's everything. It's every little hallmark that exists across an organisation and across teams. And we have our own approach to spotting and codifying the culture through nine hallmarks. But a big part of culture is governed by and influenced by leadership. The experiences that leaders create every day, those small but significant things that happen that really create the culture and the feeling of what it's like to work somewhere. And of course, increasingly in the current climate, the culture is governed and and determined by how leaders inspire people, how they role model and actually how they show and encourage resilience. To explore this whole area of culture and how leadership plays a part, I am delighted to welcome a client and friend from BBC Studios, Nikki Sheard. Nikki, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Nikki is the president of Brands and Licensing at BBC Studios and particularly doing a lot of work around growing and leading digital businesses. But she's had an incredibly diverse career, a very rich career so far. And so we want to explore some of her lessons and some of her wisdom in that career. But you will do your career much more justice than I will, Nikki. So start us off by just giving us a little little history of, of where you've been over the last few years. Yes, I will do. Well, it, it starts in a slightly unusual place, which is um, dissecting fruit flies uh, in a laboratory uh, in uh, in eastern US. So, you know, the original game plan for me was actually that I was going to be an academic scientist. And I was very much on that track until uh, I had a slight shock halfway through a PhD where I realised that I wasn't particularly good at it um, and also that I didn't enjoy it very much. And, uh, you know, as I as I reflected back ahead of doing this podcast, I realised I, I didn't really have a plan B at that point. And that was probably one of those turning moments in my career where I, you know, could have decided to battle on with it or, you know, make the decision I did make to kind of leave that and and move on. So that was sort of probably one of the, the big decision points. Um, and what I decided to do was go and do science in a in a commercial environment. So I joined Procter & Gamble, the uh, FMCG uh, consumer products company, and I joined them as a sort of commercial research and development scientist. And I remember, again, another sort of turning point in my career. One day I was in the lab and I saw these really, they just looked to me so 
cool group of people walking down the corridor with their wheelie cases and I was like who are they and someone said oh oh, they're the brand managers you know they rule this place and I you know started to explore that that a little bit more and I thought you know what I think I think that's what I want to do and in what was quite an unusual move at at Proctor I moved from the R&D team into the brand management team and so sort of began my love of brands and you know understanding audiences and creating propositions that delight them and, and, and marketing to them so had a fantastic time at PG. it's a wonderful I mean they founded brand management you know it, mm. it's kind of the university of brand management so a great place to learn that I then had a little I, I was there for about seven years wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next actually sort of life you know slightly got in the way because they wanted me to move to Geneva didn't really want to do that probably wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. And so I had a go at management consultancy. Um, I think, you know, I realized quite quickly I wasn't a consultant. I loved the sort of thrust and mess of being in an organizational role. But I think being in one of the big consultancy houses just gives you this incredible breadth, grounding rigor, um, and also network of contacts um, that I, I think was actually fundamental to driving some of my my future success. So I did that for a couple of years and it was also really helpful because it got me very interested in media. I started doing some media work while I was um while I was at McKinsey and from there I moved into my first role at the BBC which was head of marketing and news and thus began my you know my love affair with the BBC. And I was on the public service side of the BBC at that point, did a couple of roles, ended up as the director of marketing for all of the radio stations and the music services. And there my role was really focused on thinking about, at that point, I mean, you know, the the web was emerging, mobile web was emerging, apps were emerging for the first time and, and a lot of work thinking about how you take the BBC's brilliant content into digital environments. Um, also had my two uh, wonderful uh, girls while I was at the BBC. And then after the BBC, you know, I got approached by a headhunter to join a gaming company. I think this was probably one of the greatest risks I took in my career because I certainly didn't know anything about gaming. I don't think I'd really ever played a game before, but went and joined um, relatively early on the, the King Entertainment, the, the founders of, of Candy Crush, mm. and um, had the most extraordinary journey with that brand and company. Um, then after that, um, went to Charlotte Tilbury, the incredibly successful um british beauty brand that really took the world of of of, uh, beauty by by storm and was lucky to go in there as their first cmo um and then but the the lure and the pull of of media and particularly the bbc has has always been strong it's always stayed in my heart and so the opportunity came to go back to the bbc at bbc studios um first of all in the cmo role and then um uh, April last year to pick up the broader remit of, of, of brands and licensing, I sort of couldn't say no to it. Um, so I think that that is the whistle stop summary of how you go from uh, from fruit flies to to frozen planet. 
I love that journey and, and the way you've just articulated it at the very end there. I said when I introduced you, it was diverse and rich. And I think anyone listening will realise that it's probably richer than they thought. And we could probably do a whole series of podcasts on the learnings and some of the, the wisdom that you have to, to share. But we'll we'll start in this one by asking you to share some of the highlights that you've picked up, some of the experiences that you've had on that journey, Nikki, from... Uh, from flute fries to frozen planet, as you say. Uh, now, I know you're a great believer in culture and that that mm. has a huge influence on success of businesses, of teams and, and so on. And you've obviously seen many different cultures through your experiences. Um, I mean, I'm intrigued to know what you feel those different cultures have given you as a leader, because actually whether a culture is, is highly positive or incredibly toxic, it doesn't matter. It still gives us lessons, doesn't it? And it helps shapes who we are as we go. So tell us a little bit about how different cultures have, have given you different aspects as a leader. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true you say that. I think you learn from every experience and you it kind of, they, they shape you for you think, oh, I do want to be like that or I, I don't want to uh, be like that. And I, as I reflected back, I, I think, you know, despite the fact I've worked on very different businesses, you know, from sort of toothpaste to mobile games, I think cult, almost whatever your product or service you're selling, I think culture is the single biggest differentiator of all of these, all of these jobs, much more so than the role. And I think, you know, you sort of took Procter & Gamble, incredibly successful US company. And, you know, that they, they had this very methodological approach to brand management. And, you know, you really, there, there was a discipline and a rigor. And it was a it was a very helpful place to have your early career, I think, because it sort of it, it was almost like a university of brand management. But but for me as well, it felt like it was very helpful to, to, to learn all those things and have those templates. Then you could almost learn how to break them in the future. Mm. And for me, I think it worked because at the time, and I, I don't know if it's still like this, you could only come in at the bottom. They, they only did promote from within. And I suspect they've probably evolved that now. I don't know. But it sort of worked. You could work in that very sort of cookie cutter. It sounds like I'm doing it a bit of a disservice. I don't mean to. But but it, but it, but it worked because everyone came in at the bottom and everyone came up through the ranks. And I think that's a very different way to approach, you know, business, business than, than some other organisations I'd been in. And I think McKinsey was was really interesting. They had very strong values at the at the core of its culture. And one of my favorite McKinsey values, which I still um, quote to date, was the the obligation to dissent. <laughs> and it was, you know, well, it wasn't just a, a nice thing to have, it was your obligation to, to challenge. And the, and the reason for doing that was to, to make ideas better. And there was this, you know, and I, I forget exactly the phrasing, but there was another one about, you know, meritocracy of, of, of decision making and the person with the data was the person who made the you know who led the conversation in the room and I think you know we always used to joke there that you were the first sort of version of a pack you made you'd be lucky if if any of that would end up as a pen as a footnote in the appendix of the final deck because the whole thing there was to build and challenge and build and challenge and I sort of love that as a you know, as a as a value, I think the values that are most powerful are the ones that really drive how you do business and the obligation to dissent. Sort of when you hear that on your first day, that really sets up the expectation of how you're going to work. And then I think you know, King was 
you know, a Swedish organization. And it was just had this great, open, democratic culture, you know, very flat leadership, um, you know, wanted to do the right, you know, wanted to do the right thing. You know, it, it was, again, felt very, very different to other organizations I'd worked with. But at the same time, had this sort of data-driven decision-making at its core, which just meant there were no sacred cows. And if the data said something, you know, you listen to the data. And I remember very early on being asked the question, well, are brands important? And, and no one had ever asked me that question before. I was like, well, what do you, of course they're important. But, mm. but there was sort of this sense that no, no cow was too sacred to challenge. And, 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 and again, an openness to sort of disrupt and change and, you know, listen to data and a- approach things in different ways. And then my last example, you know, Charlotte Tilbury, the culture there, there was this, this extraordinary audacity to just dream big and, and again, sort of challenge everything in a way that sort of stretched me as a leader. And it was like, well, why do the same beauty brands have to, you know, run beauty? Why do you have to merchandise beauty in this way? Why can't we launch in in China or whatever it was? And I think the culture there was just driven by this incredible desire to do big things and be very bold and take risks and be very audacious. And I think that, you know, I'm naturally quite risk averse. And I think that sort of, that culture just, opened me up and made me think in very you know in in different ways about how you could move things forward and and not think about the barriers but rather think about the opportunities so that's you know like you said I could I could talk all day about this and all of them give you give you something and and what's also interesting Jane is this really I hadn't necessarily thought about a lot of these things before and and I think there's something about taking a moment actually to reflect on some of these things a bit more consciously and, and and taking them forward into helping you think a bit more about the kind of leader you want to be and the kind of culture you want to create. Yeah, I think that last point is incredibly important because it's very easy just to keep looking forwards, and especially if you're a driven leader, as you are and many others listening are. At, actually, you could miss a beat, couldn't you, if you don't stop and just reflect on how do I intentionally want to take what's from my past forward? And how do I use that well? And it's interesting you talking about your experience because I was thinking about my own career as you were going through and I was thinking about my equivalent of P&G was IBM. And I had a similar Mm. kind of really, really fundamental grounding that set me up for hopefully ongoing success. And and also your point around McKinsey and that value around the, the challenge being such an important thing that so many organizations are wanting to see that positive challenge come in more. Um, because it gives that opportunity to keep stretching, keep growing and be disruptive. And I know one of the big things I experience of you is that that ability to be bold and be that disruptor, which obviously has come not only from you in terms of, you know, who you are naturally, but from your experiences as you've gone through different cultures. So really interesting to, to hear you articulate that in that way. But but also you've kind of hinted there at some of the factors that you would look at in in a great culture and some of the things that you're keen to make sure you pay attention to, the kind of cultural indicators. Um, Are there any any others that you would point to that you would say are are really important for you when you think about creating a positive culture to to drive success in the future? You know, what's interesting, when when I started to think about this uh, and, and indicators of culture, the sort of what you said in your introduction 
everything is an indicator of culture, isn't it? It struck me like from the moment you first walk into an office and you see the reception and your experience of, you know, the 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 space, the organisation, how people talk to you, the language they use, what the meeting rooms are called, you know, job titles, how decisions are made. All of that reflects the culture. Yeah. And I think the first thing that struck me is, is in organisations that have got this right, it feels sort of cohesive. So it's not like you go into a meeting room that's called 3.6.2 and then the job description is chief whimsy officer, right? <laughs> it, it, in an organisation that's got that joined up, you know, the meeting room is called Blue Sky and you've got a chief whimsy officer. Or, or And so I think there's something about from for everything you experience in an organization getting a cohesive sense of of it being the same that for me is one of the indicators of a, a strong culture and it's, it's the same with a brand right every touch point with a brand should feel broadly consistent and and I think that's the same with a culture and then I think the other thing for me is is all is that employees can authentically talk about it and it doesn't feel like sort of a list of things on the on the back of a pass but it feels like something you know like the example I gave from McKinsey that that actually drives the business forward you know it's 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 the obligation to dissent it's the way we approach things it's you know the BBC creativity is at the heart of what we do that's not just something on on the back of the pass it's something you should feel you know in every decision that's made and in 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 how you speak to um speak to everyone so I guess the only thing I'd add is it's sort of that whole you know whatever greater than the sum of the parts that you can you can tangibly feel that and it feels consistent however you experience the organization does yeah. that does that make sense it does and I couldn't agree more and it, it, as you were speaking it reminds me that when I come into studios and in, in television center one of the things I always smile at is the way I'm greeted because <laughs> there's a particular receptionist and every time I come in, he remembers my name. He has a chat with me about what's going on today. He makes sure that I have a good day. And that's the first interaction you get coming into that building. And then the other things we look at are all of the things you've just mentioned and more. I mean, even down to the toilets. When we do a culture audit, we always say <laughs> we have to come into the building. And the first thing I do is go to the loo. Uh, and, and it's really just to see, you know, actually, if people care for some of the fundamental basics, then that does say something about whether they're caring beyond that. If they're not, then hmm, that's already an indicator. But less about toilets, more about your, your influences. I know that you mentioned lots of the businesses and the kind of cultural pieces there that have influenced you positively and given you learning throughout your career. But we all have those individuals, don't we? Those leaders that we, we come up through our journey and have inspired us. And I always marvel at the fact that a lot of them don't even realise they've done it because we're not very good mm -hmm. at telling them. I, I make a point now of trying to connect with people from my past to say, you know, thank you because I wouldn't be doing this now if it wasn't for you. Who are the people, maybe not by name, but just give us some examples of some of the leaders that have, have helped you learn, grow and be who you are as you lead the businesses moving forward? Yeah, I mean, it, again, there are so many and I we talked a bit, I was a, you're a bit reluctant to name people because then you feel bad about the, the people that you, you know, you sort of haven't named. And and I thought about this and actually the, the first one, 
might sound a bit funny, but actually, I think the first people who influenced my career were were my parents. And I thought back to the first sort of few years of my career at Procter & Gamble. And one of the pieces of feedback I always used to get that used to surprise me was so much was, wow, Nikki, you always do what you say you're going to do. And, you know, if you commit to something, you deliver. And I remember sort of slightly scratching my head about this because I just didn't know it was an option not to. And I think that slightly it comes from the fact that, you know, I come from a farming background and it's not really a job. It's sort of a life. Mm. And, you know, you can't not water a field or you know feed a cow and I think there's just something and I'm, I'm you know I might be sounding a bit nostalgic and whimsical myself but I've been doing quite a lot of thinking about values and I think those are set very early on and that sort of conscientiousness and work ethic and also some of the issues for example like a, la- a lack of boundaries which I really struggle with I think I think those are set very early on and I think this notion of hard work and if you make a commitment to people you deliver on it I think that really comes from um comes from my parents so I I think it 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 started off there and I've I've never said this to them but I think they you know a lot of credit to your point about you know reflecting back to people I think a lot of a lot of what drives me and has has influenced me is is that and then the second person I thought about was was one of my earlier bosses at, at Procter & Gamble. And I didn't know about Radical Candor then, but I know about it now. And I think he was the first person who had a properly honest conversation with me about something I wasn't good at. And I think until then, I thought that appraisals, you know, you needed to kind of like show polish everything and be brilliant and show that you you know didn't have any issues and I remember him taking me aside and going Nikki you're not very good at x and I sort of I remember that sort of hot flush of of you know feeling uncomfortable and then suddenly this almost like flood of relief going oh thank god he's right and I don't have to pretend and realizing actually that a really good boss is will do that and will know that there's things that you're not good at and of course there's things that we're all not good at and you don't need to hide it and actually now it was out in the open we could work on it together and it would only make me better and uh, we'll shout out to him Patrick because I don't think I've ever told him that and I will I think he's in Singapore now and we're still in touch but that was a really transformational moment for me and it wasn't a big moment it was just a corridor late at night in the office a corridor conversation you know late at night in Geneva and I think back to that moment and I think that was so important and then I think the last the last person who's probably had the most profound impact on me is 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 a coach that I've worked with for the last sort of 10 or 11 years and when we started working together I was very riddled by imposter syndrome and it was really holding me back and I think you know I've had coaches and I've had good experiences with them but the relationship with this coach was a really transformational one and I think you know the timing and the chemistry and the whatever was all just right and you know I remember having a conversation with her about I don't think I can ever be a CMO I don't you know and I, I went from you know feeling that way to really feeling like you know it's it's I, I, I could do that and I, I can kind of do whatever I want but it's up to up to me to make those decisions and I, I found working with her really really transformational so 
those are sort of three you know but all throughout my career you know and it's not just leaders as well it's also your your teams I mean I've learned so much from my my teams and my peers and you know people around you and I find that people are so generous you know it's well I always try and pay back and if you know people want to have chats with me I try and do that but little pockets of people here there you know talking to you willing to give you advice willing to put you in touch with people um I feel very very blessed throughout my career to have had you know so many people helping me out and I think it's one of those things I don't be scared to ask people because most people do want to help but, but also do pay back you know think back to that time you were 19 and had no idea what it meant or 22 and were terrified to try and have a conversation with your boss and 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 if people have done that for you you know be, be generous and do that for others yeah there's a definite pay it forward theme isn't there but also just to your point that it's not always the people who have got the job title in terms of a leader that might influence you and give you something that that's really significant for the for the future it's people from anywhere and actually I think to me it's the attitude of wanting to learn of wanting to grow of being open your example there in Singapore of getting that sorry with uh, with your your leader that's now in Singapore being open to be able to take that feedback on board and that insight and do something with it is is needed before you can actually have those conversations. And of course, that's a big part of resilience, isn't it? Is continuing to be resilient by having the right attitude. And I guess that's the last area for now, at least, that I'd love to explore with you in terms of just how you continue to build your resilience as a leader, because the last few years in particular have tested us all. And mm. the year ahead, I think, for many of us is going to test us. And I'd love just to understand, you know, what, what advice and what, what learning have you got to share to pay forward around resilience and how you manage what we call the bank of me, you know, the, the deposits and withdrawals you put into yourself each day? Yeah, and I, I think I've only started to do this consciously. I was thinking back to my early career, and I don't think I really did this consciously. So I think this has been one of the most important things I've done, you know, with my coach who I mentioned, but also with you and Jane and others. And I, I think it starts off with understanding what you need to kind of be resilient. And everyone is different in what they, you know, in what they need, in what drains them of energy and what gives them energy. So the first thing, you know, like a good scientist, I'd say is do your diagnostic and, and understand, you know, when are the times you, you, you know, you, you don't feel resilient, what's happened. And, and I feel like now over the years, I've got a really good understanding of what triggers me. Um, and, you know, what, what replenishes me. So I think that's the sort of first job. And then I think it's about then making sure you're addressing those things. And I, I think for me, I sort of think about it on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, and, you know, on a, a lot a longer basis than that. So I'm sort of looking right now, I've got one of those, you know, when you're sort of trying to get your children to encourage things, you have a little star list and, you, you know, you give them stickers. <laughs> I've literally got one of those for my weekly energy drivers, which says, have I, have I had my five a day? Because I realised I was being really bad at eating fruit and vegetables. Have I done exercise three times a week? Have I had enough sleep? And have I spent some quality time with my my kids and and uh, and my husband? If he's lucky, that's lower down the list. But I've sort of literally got that there as a visual reminder um, of the things that I kind of need within within a week. You know, then I I talked about this a bit earlier. I'm I'm 
I find it very hard to put up boundaries with work. And so physical distance from work is really important to me. I, I, I have to take holidays and I have to sort of switch off in those holidays because I find it very hard if I'm working. You know, if I finish at five o'clock or 1 a.m., I'm kind of always thinking about work if I'm at work. You know, my, my husband's very different like that. He comes home from work and can completely switch off, but I'm not like that. So, again, I know I've got to take regular holidays and I always try and have my next holiday book to you know to look forward to I also you know I I, I like um, I'm very passionate about education and in particular you know steam stem learning and so I need I need some nourishment around that so you know I'm I'm a, a, on the advisory board of the science museum and so I think finding times to do things like that is is really important for me building up my bank of me doing stuff where I feel like I'm I'm helping in a in a space that's 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 really important to me um so I think it's a mix of um and 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 the other one for me is as well and I think you might have even introduced this concept to me is having a few having a few canaries you know the proverbial canary in the coal mine who if they see signs of me going into a less good place can just sort of tap me on the shoulder and go are you all right because what you want to do is you want to catch these things before they you know ideally go too far and having those people around you could just go hang on a minute you know are you are you okay do you need a moment but but I think you know everyone is so different in this in what they need and the frequency and the things that work I'll go back to the sort of point. I think the most important thing is understanding what, what you need and then setting up the, you know, the, the, the parameters to allow you to, to get that. And also it's different, you know, different organisations. You know, some organisations will be more flexible, some won't. So what is realistic within that, you know, within that environment? Yeah, and it's interesting that you started off there talking about your star chart and your your almost physiological basics and your emotional basics. And it, it just reminds me as well that knowing all of this is easy, but actually consistently doing it is a lot harder, no matter how well developed we are as humans and leaders and individuals. And that thing around, it's not just about intention, but it's consistently delivering on it. And your checking in kind of idea is exactly what you, you know, we both share as a passion. And, and of course, what drove us to create the Bank of Me concept and, and the app that goes with it. So really interesting to hear both the kind of the fundamentals from you there, Nikki, but also the need to keep, keep being reminded you know, in, in the canary in the coal mine example. So listen, I would love to talk for more and I'm sure everyone listening is going, oh no, carry on, carry on. But I'm just <laughs> going to ask you one final question this time and then maybe we'll get you back on again to, to dig a bit de- deeper. You've, you've covered a lot around lessons learned and you're, you're clearly very self-aware and, and I know that from my experience of you. But if you reflect back, what advice would you give to your younger self knowing what you know now? worry a lot less <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean that's it I I think you know I think lots of motivated kind of career-minded ambitious people who I'm sure are the kinds of people that listen to this podcast sort of drives themselves into slight existential angst perhaps overthinking things and so you know one of the things I'm really trying to get better at is 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 being in the moment and enjoying the moment and you know I suspect a lot of the decisions we're facing are you know the reality is you're, you're, you're probably going to have a great career and if you choose option a or option b 
it'll still be great. It might be a bit different, but it will still be great. So I think, you know, focus on the things that really matter in life, family, friends, you know, and and try and try and be in the moment a bit more and and enjoy life. You know, it's so precious. So those would be my my advice to my younger self. What a great way to finish. And I've been reflecting myself, actually, with a lot of people just this week around to that point around enjoying it asking yourself at the beginning and the end of the day what did I actually enjoy today because it's very easy just to go through and deliver but actually making sure that you're you're looking for the enjoyment as well so that you notice it when it's there I think is so important so Nikki thank you so much for joining us it's been hugely insightful inspirational and and practical which is what I love that, that there's lots that you've talked about that I'm sure people listening can take away and use. So thank you for joining us and perhaps you'll come up again in a few months time and share some of the updated thinking and a little more depth on some of the areas. I'd be delighted to do that. Thanks for having me, Jane. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you for listening. Continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com. Thank you.